Thank you for these that are here tonight, Father. We pray that you will be accomplished and that your word will go forth with great power and boldness. That we can be serving you, Lord. We will be giving you first place in our lives and in our heart. Thank you for all you've done, given to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Uh, so usually, when it comes for evening church and the, the messages we hear, at least from what I can remember, we usually go over uh, persons. We, we look at people. I, I do remember when we went through Psalm 119. That did take a while. Uh, but I also remember going through David and Elisha and other individuals in the Bible. So I'm going to be keeping that theme for the next three weeks. And I've chosen a person who is found and introduced in Numbers 22 to 24. So we're going to look at 22 this week, 23 next week, 24 my third week. And that person is a man by the name of Balaam. And you may know who Balaam is uh, based on the story he's most famous for, which is the the talking donkey. But there's a little bit more to him than just that very humorous incident that we will be reading tonight, actually. Now, when Balaam arrives in Numbers, because we do start in Numbers 22, the Israelites are on, on pretty shaky ground. Uh, if, if you were to read through the book of Numbers and you were to pay attention to how things are going for the Israelites, they're not going great. The key event, the, the kind of crowning failure of the Israelites is found in Numbers, and it's the 12 spies incident. That's found in Numbers 13 and 14, where the generation that made it through the Exodus and just left Egypt comes to the edge of the Promised Land, and they send in the 12 spies. And we know at least two by name, Joshua and Caleb, and we know their names because they're the only two that gave a good report. Uh, The other 10 gave a very bad report. They loved everything they saw in the promised land except the people that were there. And they convinced the Israelites that they could not take the land that God had promised to them, despite Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb telling them, no, we can do this. The Lord is going to provide it. So the people rejected the promised land, and because of that, God rejected that generation from entering it and told them, okay, go wander for 40 years until all of you die because you have rejected the promised land, so I'm going to give it to your children. So that's what they do in Numbers. For 40 years, they wander. On top of that, Numbers and much of the, old, much of the first five books, when you look at the Israelites, is filled with complaining. Uh, this is something that the Israelites are probably most known for in the first five books of the Bible. And this includes important leaders. We have prominent Levites, 250 of them, come and complain before Moses and Aaron and question why they get special treatment when all the people are holy. That's number 16. And even Moses' siblings, his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, complain against Moses in number 12, in Numbers 12. And actually, in Numbers 20, Moses himself, the head guy, has openly disobeyed God in front of the congregation because God told him to speak to the rock to cause water to flow from it. And in a fit of anger, he strikes the rock. 
So if you're paying attention as the book of Numbers progresses, we start with Mount Sinai where God gave the law and the instructions on the tabernacle. And then we wander a bit and we get to a point where this generation has mostly died off because they rejected the promised land. In fact, the only major prominent figure left from the original Exodus group is Moses. Aaron is dead. Miriam is dead. Many, many, many of the tribal leaders at this point are dead. So as you read it, it's kind of just going this way as you go through the book until you get to Numbers 22. Because Numbers 22 is the turning point for this trend. And interestingly enough, God communicates this using a pagan magician. God is not done with his people despite their many, many, many failings. And God's plan for his people will come to fruition despite all of their shortcomings and despite all of the challenges that they are going to face. And what we're going to see is that man's conspiring, man's planning against God will always amount to nothing because God is in control. So let's start Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. So what this tells us is that the Israelites have made it to the plains of Moab. They are at the border of the promised land once again. The Israelites have returned from their wilderness wanderings. That 40 years of wilderness wanderings has finally ended. And interestingly enough, the plains of Moab is where the entire book of Deuteronomy is given. So until we get to Joshua, this is where we are. We are at the plains of Moab. And the previous generation rejected God's promise. And the question now is, what is this next generation going to do? But then we get to verses 2 to 4. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at this time. So here, the narrative dramatically shifts. We are no longer focusing on the Israelites or Moses. We are now focusing on a new character. His name is Balak. And he is the king of Moab. And Balak has a huge problem, two plus million strong, and that is the Israelites who are now his next door neighbors. And they have destroyed the Amorites. They have destroyed Og, uh, the king of Bashan. In fact, if you look back just one chapter into Numbers 21, and you read verses 33 to 35, we read this. Then they, being the Israelites, turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edrai. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people, until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. That is the most frequent event that has happened for the Israelites. So Balak is a smart king, and he realizes he's probably next. He's probably the next domino in the line. And the entire country of Moab is in great fear or in dread 
of Israel. And this phrase, in dread, uh, can be translated as a sickening fear. Uh, It's a fear that causes your stomach to drop. They are terrified of these people. So the Moabites and the Midianites confer together and address the threat that is the Israelites camping next door. And they probably are discussing all of their military campaigns that they just had success on. Uh, Chapter 21 has three of them. They defeated the Canaanite king of Arad. They they defeated Sihon king of the Amorites, which is something mentioned here in verse 2. And they defeat Og king of Bashan. So they're probably realizing that military might just isn't going to cut it, especially if they also connect it to Egypt and they have heard about what happened to the Egyptians. So they're probably thinking they need more than just military might. So Balak, as king, makes an executive decision. And we see this in verses 5 to 7. So he, Balak, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, the people came out of Egypt. Behold, they covered the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. So Balak puts his hope in a man named Balaam, who lives in a city called Pethor, which is near the Euphrates River. Pethor, this city where Balaam lives, can literally be translated as soothsayer. So Balaam lives in a city of soothsayers near the Euphrates River. We don't know exactly where Pethor is, but general agreement is that Pethor is about 400 miles away from Moab. So Balak sends for someone 400 miles away to come save him. That also means that when we read about his representatives, because he sends two rounds of representatives, when we read about them going to Balaam and coming back, that is weeks of time that has passed. We also learn a few things about our person of interest, Balaam. First, he's famous. People 400 miles away are looking for his services. They've heard about him, they've heard very good reviews, and they're hiring him. To give you a, a, an American example of that, if you wanted to, let's say, redo your bathroom, this would be you contacting a company in the Adirondacks in upstate New York because you've heard their work is so good and asking them to come do and remodel your bathroom for you. That is the distance that we're talking about here. So one, he's famous. The Moabites have heard about him. Two, he is known for cursing and he is known for blessing. And that doesn't mean like swearing. He is known to be the guy that can invoke divine favor and the guy that can invoke divine harm. What that means is, to everyone around him, they believe that he has the gods on speed dial. You need a god to do something, Balaam is the guy you call up, and Balaam is the guy that talks with gods, and he figures it out. Third, we learn that he collects fees for divination. That makes him a diviner or a diviner. This is someone who claims to be able to see the future with the help of gods. And they had a a number of methods they would use this for. Some of them would cast lots, which was something like dice, 
or even marked sticks and they would read what the gods would have them do based on what symbols came up and how they came up. Uh, Some used the stars and they would look at the constellations and different celestial bodies and then they would come up with their message. Uh, Others would look at the entrails of animals. You would slaughter an animal and look at certain markings on certain organs and then you could figure out what the gods were telling you to do. Uh, There were a number of different ways that you could do this. But the fact of the matter is, what we learn about Balaam is that he is a pagan practitioner of magic and a type of magic that is forbidden by God. That is Leviticus 19.26. And what we learn in Deuteronomy 18.12 is that the people who practice this kind of magic are considered an abomination by God. That is who Balak reaches out to. That is who Balaam is. So Balak's representatives show up after a few weeks of travel and they deliver the message of, come curse these people so that I can defeat them. And we get Balak's response in verses 8 to 14. Balaam said to them, spend the night here and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. That is a very important phrase and a turning point here in the book of Numbers. Verse 13. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. So Balaam accepts the representatives and he tells them, All right, I'll get to you in the morning. I'm going to go talk with Yahweh. And if you notice between verses 8 and 14, there are two ways probably that your Bible uses, or two different names that your Bible uses in reference to God. There is Lord, all capital letters, and there is God. Lord, all capital letters, is Yahweh. That is, that is God's covenantal name. That is the I am name. The word God is the word Elohim, and it's better translated deity. It, it is just what you would refer to a God as, not a specific one. So one is God's actual name, Lord, and the other one is just God, just deity. So Balaam knows God's covenant name and Balaam uses God's covenant name when he refers to him, which is probably a comfort to the Moabites that Balaam is saying, oh yeah, I know this people's God. I can can call him up and I can talk with him and I can get it worked out and their own God will curse them so that they will lose. And Yahweh does come, and notice who starts the conversation. It's God. It's not Balaam. God is the one, Yahweh is the one who comes to Balaam, which means that Balaam isn't the one in control. Yahweh opens up the conversation. Yahweh is the one who starts it. Balaam didn't force a conversation with God, and Yahweh has a very clear message. Do not go with these men, and do not curse these people, for they are blessed which is part of God's promise to Abraham. If you flip with me to Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, we see the first mention of God's 
covenant or God's promise to Abraham. We divide it into three categories, a, a blessing of land, a blessing of seed, and a blessing of blessing, actually. So verse 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 12. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham, and God will be faithful to his people. God will not curse his people because they are blessed, because he has promised to their forefathers blessing. So Balaam relates this message, and the representatives go away. Now, by the time the representatives get back to Balak, probably a month has passed, and Balaam is just kind of there twiddling his thumbs, trying to figure out what's going to happen and hoping that Balaam comes. So they get to the end, verse 14, they get to the end, and they say, Balaam refused to come with us. Verse 15. Then Balak again sent leaders more numerous and more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me, for I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. Balak is desperate. Balak has hung all of his hope on Balaam coming and cursing. So he sends higher ranking officials and he sends a promise not just of a fee for divination, but anything that Balaam wants, Balak is going to give him. I will indeed honor you richly and I will do whatever you say to me. So the representatives go off. A few weeks pass. They show up at Balaam's. Verses 18 and 19. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, and we assume that they gave the message at this point. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now please, you also stay here tonight and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. Balaam's response makes him sound very honorable, very upstanding, a man of integrity. You could offer me a house full of silver and gold and I would never disobey the Lord my God. But I do want you to notice that Balaam is specific where Balak was general. Balak said, I will honor you richly. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to give you a ton of money. It just means I'm, I am willing to give you what you want for this. Balaam, when he hears that, immediately translates it to lots and lots and lots of money. That is very important when we look later on at Balaam's motivations. But also what we see is that Balaam refers to Yahweh as my God, which isn't true. Because Balaam is not a Jew. Balaam is not a follower of Yahweh. Balaam is lying. Uh, Balaam is lying to these representatives to try and make the act seem better. Because we know from other portions of Scripture, like Joshua 13, where Balaam is killed by the Israelites, Uh, And then later on in the New Testament, when they talk about Balaam's sin, we know that Balaam is not a follower of Yahweh. We know that Balaam is not a faithful Jew. What he's doing is he's putting on an act. 
The representatives have come again. He says, all right, I'll go talk to my God. Not I'm going to go talk to the Israelite God. I'm going to go talk to my God. He is someone that I know personally. He's trying to sell the act, so to speak. So he does. Verse 20. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So God, once again, comes to Balaam first, showing that Balaam, again, is not the one in control. And again, he makes his message crystal clear. If the men call you, rise up and go with them. But only do what I say. Notice that condition. If the men call you. Previously, Balaam just went out to them in the morning. But God doesn't tell Balaam, get up first thing in the morning and go. God tells Balaam, you wait until the men come call for you. And if they call for him, then he can go. But this is how Balak responds to that in verse 21. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. Verse 22, but God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. There is no mention of the men calling for him. In fact, it seems that Balaam took this as a go for it and then just rushed. Like if you ever dealt with a child or a grandchild who really, 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 really wanted something and was begging and begging and begging and you finally broke and said yes, but, and then it doesn't matter what you say after that because the kid's not paying attention because you said yes. So they're going to go run with it. That's kind of the idea here with Balaam. Balaam got the answer he wanted and he didn't really care about what the rest of it was. It was, yeah, you can go with them. That's what, that's what Balaam heard. And so that's what Balaam did. And that is not what God told Balaam to do. See, when these representatives come, one, they're very distinguished. They're very important to Moab and they have to travel 400 miles. They're not coming by themselves. They have security. They have servants and slaves. So it's a whole big group of them that comes and they will set up their tents around Pethor and go and speak with Balaam. So following God's directions, Balaam would have to wait until the men came in the morning to his home and called for him and then Balaam could go. What Balaam does is the second morning comes, he's out the door and he's ready to go. All right, guys, I got the okay from my God, Yahweh. We're good to go. There's no patience. There's no waiting. Balaam is very eager to be on his way. And in so doing, he sins. And God's anger rises against Balaam for his disobedience, much like it did towards the Israelites. And now God is his adversary. And he is standing before him. And now we get into what is probably the most humorous passage in all of Scripture frankly. Verse 23 to verse 30. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field, but Balaam struck the donkey to turn it back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. 
When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. I don't want you to miss the irony in this passage. Balaam is very famous because he is a diviner. He is supposed to know the will of the gods. He is supposed to be in tune with the supernatural. And Balaam can't see the angel in front of him with a sword in hand. But what can? His donkey. His donkey can, and Balaam can't. And Balaam fails to do it three times, and the entire time the donkey is making a fool of him. Really, put yourself in Balaam's shoes. Highly esteemed representatives from a king who has promised you anything you ask for have hired you and are traveling with you back to their land because they think you can predict the future and work with the gods to make things work out how you want. But you can't even control your donkey. You can't even get your own animal to do what you want. And that is in front of everybody. Hence why Balaam says, you're making a mockery of me. You're making me look like an idiot in front of all of these very powerful people who are going to pay me lots of money and who are supposed to trust in my ability. Balaam can't see the divine adversary, but the donkey can. And the donkey's behavior enrages Balaam by the end of it, to the point where he tells the donkey, if I had a sword, I would kill you. I would just end this right here. Balaam has absolutely zero control here. He can't control his message because God's told him, only the word I tell you shall speak, and he can't control his donkey. And even more surprising than that is that in his rage, he is totally blind to the fact that a literal miracle is happening in front of him. His donkey is talking to him, and he doesn't even skip a beat. He doesn't even care. He is so angry, he gets into a heated conversation with his donkey without realizing that a miracle has taken place. And the donkey even points out, uh, Balaam, have I ever done this to you? Balaam admits no. And you'd think for someone who's supposed to be in tune with the supernatural, that might tip him off that something's in the way or that something else is going on. But all it does is just make him really, really mad to the point where he's murderous with his rage. Don't miss that irony. Numbers is making it very clear that Balaam is a hack, that he is not the one who is in control, but that the Lord is going to be using him. Then we get to Numbers 31 to 35, or 22 verses 31 to 35. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And what's interesting about that phrase is it's the same one that's used to describe the Lord opening the mouth of the donkey. He opens the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in hand. And he bowed all the way to the ground. Balaam prostrates himself before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to you as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. 
If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. That's quite an admission. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Balaam finally sees what he was missing, because the Lord decides to open his eyes, not because Balaam is a super spiritual man. It is an angel, the angel of the Lord, in his way with a sword drawn and Balaam prostrates himself before his visitor. And Balaam finds out, if it wasn't for your donkey, you'd be dead. Because Balaam is contrary to the Lord. That is how it's described in verse 32. Contrary. This word means perverse or deviating. It's this idea that Balaam got instructions from the Lord and he's deviating from them. He is perverting those instructions. The Lord said, wait for the men to call you, and Balaam eagerly went on his way first thing. Now, we've hinted at it a little bit, but the New Testament makes it clear what Balaam's motivations were. We won't flip to them, but I will read the parts from them. You can put the references down if you're taking notes. 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude 11. 2 Peter 2.15 says this about Balaam. Having followed the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And Jude 11. For pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. When Balaam is referred to in the New Testament as a sinner and his sin is defined, it involves money. So when Balaam heard from Balak, I will honor you richly, Balaam sold dollar signs. And that immediately translated to silver and gold and lots and lots of silver and lots of lots of gold. And he eagerly rushed towards his increased pay instead of waiting on the Lord and obeying the Lord. His motivation here is contrary to the Lord. It is not to bless God's people. It is not to obey the Lord. His goal here is to make a lot of money. That is what he has set out to do. It's his greed. And he can't control his message, he can't control his donkey, and he can't control his greed to the point where his greed almost gets him killed. And the angel of the Lord, sword in hand, reminds him, only the word that I tell you. And that is a very good visual reminder for Balaam for who's in charge. That Balaam is not dealing with some fake god Balaam is dealing with the one true God, Yahweh. And this is deadly serious, what Balaam is about to do. So Balaam goes with the representatives of Balak, and we return to Balak, verses 36 to 41, and this will close out the chapter for us. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders that were with him. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, 
and he saw from there a portion of the people. From Balak's perspective, it's been about two months that the Israelites have been his neighbors, and he has been eagerly waiting for Balaam to come back. He is waiting for his representatives to return, hopefully this time with Balaam. In fact, he's so eager that he goes to the extreme end of his country's border so that he can be one of the first people to see if Balaam is coming. So as soon as possible, he can talk to these representatives. Balak is desperate for Balaam's services. But he's also impatient with Balaam. Because when Balaam shows up, Balak just kind of lets it rip. What took you so long? Did you think I was lying? Did you think I'm not actually going to give you all that you asked for? And Balaam responds very casually, well, I'm here now, but I'm only going to speak what the Lord gives me. And in the last two verses, we're introduced to Balak's God. They sacrifice oxen, they sacrifice sheep, they enjoy a meal, no doubt dedicated to Baal. Because that is where they go. They go to the high places of Baal to look at the Israelites. And next week, we will look at whether that blessing or that curse comes from Balaam. But it is now King Balak, the Moabites, and the Midianites, the diviner Balaam and Baal against the Israelites. It is a king... at least a nation, if not two nations, a diviner and a god, little g, versus God's chosen people. And that's not even a fair fight. Because man's conspiring against God will always amount to nothing, for God is in control. Despite the Israelite shortcomings that we looked at at the beginning here, they are blessed. Despite the numerous enemies rising against them, they are blessed. Balaam isn't the one in control. Balak isn't the one in control. God is the one in control. And despite our shortcomings, God is in control. Despite the actions of others against God's children, God is in control. And when the odds seem stacked against us, God is in control. And if God is for us, who can be against us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for those who made it out to hear from your word. I thank you for your word and that we have these people like Balaam who are not examples of what to do but are examples of what not to do. That they are warnings for us. But I thank you that even when you deal with these warnings, you still show that you are the God who is in control you still show that you are the one that is orchestrating these things and that you are going to work it out for good as we're going to see in the upcoming weeks. Help us to trust in your control no matter how many people are against us, no matter how stacked the odds seem. Help us to trust in your control that you are God and there is no other and that you are for us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.